Welcome to the New Age Boxing Podcast with me, Andy White, and with me today... Oh, is that my cue? Right, yeah, Martin, <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> and... And I'm Terry Chapandama. He gets a prompt. <laughs> I was hoping for an intro. <laughs> I'll take a prompt. And that is how we roll on the New Age Boxing Podcast. Slick as you like. Okay, let's go straight in. What did you both think of the Tony Bellew fight on Sunday? Well, I, I know Terry has some views on this, which uh, I've, I've seen his Facebook post about it. So I think I'll start off with a less controversial one. <laughs> uh, I thought it was impressive. Like We won't discuss the undercard because it was primarily uh, a load of shit. But, um, you know, Bellew, he gets dropped in the first round. And we were sat watching, me and my wife sat watching it. And as he gets, like, he had Macabu on the ropes. Um, and I was saying to her, like, he needs to watch himself here because Macabu's just playing possum, waiting, waiting. Sure enough, like, as he backs off, Macabu just throws a left hand uh, over the top. And it was a bit of a flash knockdown. And Bellew kind of gets up and in the third round stopped him. But. In terms of what it was, I mean, uh, boxing fans are quite short-minded and you kind of see a lot today saying Makabu, ah, he was never that good, whereas before the fight he was built up as this destroyer. So I think, you know, Bellew needs to get some credit for that. Um, and that view is probably now going to be negated by Mr. Chapandama, who <laughs> I think he probably saw it a little bit different. So what kind of uh, crazy view are you going to count with Terry? Is he secretly a woman or is he... A massive cheat, or I'm I'm still confused. Um, I've watched that fight back twice. I'm still confused. You have a boxer who shows up in round one, and seemed <laughs> ignoring the fact that he he did what Wadi Kamacho does, and he stepped to the left of the southpaw, which I found bizarre. But he was still able to get that right jab into the body. So I'm watching him going slightly unorthodox, but you seem to have good enough timing that you're making Bell you miss. And he was. Bellew was trying to figure him out. It didn't make any sense. For big guy, he had really good head movement. He was, in terms of skill, a slightly lesser version of Tobiso Michunu, who, if you remember... He beat. Eddie Chambers. If you remember, he... Yeah, he so, Mokabu beat him and he beat Eddie Chambers. So, skill-wise, you're like, okay, he's at a high level. So, I watched the first round. He took the straight left. Bellew went over. I didn't think it was a serious knockdown. But if you're a southpaw and you've just landed with a straight left, why would you stop throwing that punch for the next two rounds? Which he did, because he just used the the jab consistently. It's almost like so, it's almost like someone in the corner said, "Listen, you're doing too good. <laughs> stop." <laughs> just as if, just <laughs> stop. Really say that would they, Terry? Really? It's like his corner <laughs> just said, "Listen, stop." Just, just all this stuff. You're making him look bad. Stop. Stop moving your head. Lean up against the ropes. Put your hands over your head. You know the English guys love that guard. Nice high guard. Lean against the ropes and take your shellacking. You've been paid well for this. <laughs> okay, look. I've got to. Uh, we've got to at least come at it with a different point of view. Are you saying, therefore, that Tony Bell, you didn't like? He didn't deserve to win. Or? No, no, Tony. I don't think Tony would have been in on it. Tony turned up, did what he was supposed to do, and the left hook that put him out was actually a really impressive punch. But it was the way. 
you had almost two different boxes in that fight. Like, Maccabi went from being a guy who you looked at and went, hmm, okay, to just, what the hell just happened there? Uh, and you can't put that down to perhaps Bellew outperforming him, um, change, making him feel we've like seen, he we, We've seen too much of Tony Bellew. We've seen too much of him to know what he's capable of. And he did nothing spectacular. He, he almost seemed to just... You know, that, it's like you're beating up on a novice. That's what worried me the most was, well, where did that come from? If someone can explain to me how, it's like, you know, maybe Makabu just thought, I'm going to take this guy out. No, this is too easy. Maybe he got overconfident. I can accept that. But the idea that that was somehow a fair, full-blooded fight just doesn't sit right with me. All right, well, but he did, uh, Tony Bowie did win, and uh, then he picks up the WBC yeah. Cruiserweight yeah. title. Um, so I suppose the most logical thing to say, therefore, is uh, what next? It, am I right in thinking he's, what is he, the, what is he, the 13th or 14th title holder? Is uh, he the 13th because Frampton vacated, I think? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think he is probably the 13th. Um, it's kind of, it's irrelevant. It, yeah, it's, it's total bollocks. I, the reason I asked is because obviously uh, you showed a lot of uh, Twitter pictures and I saw, I saw online as well of people arguing the toss and I just, you know, if, if other listeners have seen it, they might just want to come. irrelevant now, you know. You, 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 like I told you, this is this is a matchroom hype machine. Our fighters are good because they have belts. Not anymore. Our fighters are good because they'll beat anyone. Yeah. That's the problem we have. Yeah, there's something uh, we messaged about the other day about how Matchroom have managed to make heroes out of the likes of Kel Brook, <laughs> and yet make villains out of the likes of Tyson Fury, who's beaten the best in his division, Amir Khan, who's willing to take a risk against somebody two divisions above. They're kind of vilified by you know a more casual boxing fan, um, because while, Eddie says so. While the sky hype machine gets behind people that beat up useless opponents. I'm not saying that about Bellew, by the way. I'm thinking more about the likes of Brooke and, well, you can throw lots Look, of people in there. Really. I'll be honest with you, Eddie Hearn's the kind of guy that goes into a nightclub and you go up to a woman and you go, yeah, I really like you, I'd like to take you out, wine and dine you. And she says no. And he goes and tells his mate, she's fucking ugly. <laughs> he's that kind of guy that does that. And you can understand why he does it because he's got a bat for his own team, but it leaves a bad taste in the mouth when you're disrespecting guys like Amir Khan and David Hay, who have done more for boxing than any match from fights. In fact, any of the match from stable combined. <laughs> okay, so what next for Bellew? Where does he go next? He'll have a soft defence. It doesn't even matter who against. They'll resurrect Ola Falabi yep. from somewhere. They'll let him fight someone like that. They won't let him fight Ledbedev because he'll take his head off. Shumanov isn't going to get anywhere near him for... Nope. Um, and I always think the guy that took out Marco Huck, not Spilska, it's the other one, Glowacki. Yeah. Won't let him near him either because if there's a southpaw that will punch and he won't mess around with that left hand. He, and he won't forget how to box in the third round. I promise you that. The one that'd be interesting would be uh, Usk, as and when he returns. What's he? He's at eight, eight or nine and oh at the moment, but he's just stopping everyone. Yeah. Um, I, I think what we've realised is Bellew doesn't like punches <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he got into the wrong sport really didn't he yeah. bless him well, well he turned to acting <laughs> alright yeah fair one can we discuss the state of uh, his outfit and his beard though Like it, somebody said to me today he looks like an Amish person which <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe Hearn hasn't taken him out on enough dates. Well, yeah, maybe. But, but it's one of the strange things. Like, 
outside outside of the outside of like a boxing ring, Tony Bell is absolutely brilliant. Like really articulate about the sport, has a good record in the sport, and is always willing to give back to the sport. I have no issue with that. The problem I have is let's not turn what is a British slash European level fighter into a world champion and tell the world that he's that great. Tony Bell is a great professional. He's a guy that you know you can look up to and go, look if I. If I stay true to the to the sport, I can get somewhere and I can look after my family. And he's a good example of that. But he's not he's not a game changing fighter in the way that you know the matchroom hype machine would have you believe. I'd like to see him with um, <clears throat> either Oville McKenzie again or Enzo Macronelli. Like have a domestic fight and work out because I'm not even convinced he's the best domestic cruiserweight. I think Oville McKenzie still has a lot to offer. I know they fought earlier in their careers. Enzo Macronelli, like, yes, his best days may be behind him, but, I mean, he's fighting for the European title, isn't he, uh, coming up soon, in the one that McKenzie couldn't make. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't object to seeing that. I mean, it's a slightly softer defence to start off with, which perhaps is more likely. Uh, it's got to be better than seeing them fly over some Argentinian or whatever that nobody's going to be particularly familiar with. I'd like to see something like that happen. I just want to resurrect Afalabi. Let, let, let Afalabi have that one British fight that he deserves for being one of the few guys who built his career outside of the UK. You know, when people didn't want him. Remember, if you remember, he was brought over, as I was saying before about the Bellew fight, he was brought over to lose to Macronelli. Yeah. And knocked him out in the ninth round with one of the scariest right hands I've seen. And no promoter would touch him because he broke the golden <laughs> rule, which is... When, when you're involved in a showcase fight for our guy and you ruin that party and you, you, you blow the millions we've wasted, there's a price to pay. So I'm sure Makabu was warned about what happened to Afalabi and said, you know what, I can't do anything else other than box, so I'll play ball. Just an opinion, it's not a fact and it's not a statement of President <laughs> anything. I don't want to get sued for that. And you can take that to the bank. Although, speaking of which, what about Bellew's um, interview that he did straight after the fight where he just started having a go about Frank Warren? <laughs> it was tremendous. He referred to him as fish eyes. Um, <laughs> Maybe he's confused as to who he's going to have to defend his title against. <laughs> yeah. Trash no. talking Warren. Cause, no, when uh, Warren... He left Warren like a few years back, and uh, I can't remember the words. But uh, look up the interview if you didn't watch it after the fight. It's brilliant. It's uh, it's just Bellew going off on one and not caring about the cameras being there. Um, and yeah, had a right go about Warren, who I think they probably had a legal dispute, like when Warren or when he left Warren, because ninety nine percent of fighters do and get a letter through from him. But if I'm being honest, As, Warren's a good ch- he's a good judge of ability. I'd, I'd sooner take Warren's opinion on a fighter than Eddie Hearns. Yeah, no, I think quite possibly. I mean, he's in an unfortunate rut at the moment, isn't he, really? Where, you know, he's not... Uh, we're going to come on to it a bit later with the Liam Smith fight, I guess. But uh, he's not got the stable and he seems to be losing his golden touch of promotion. Um, which, you know, between those two things isn't, you know, isn't great practice for a boxing promoter. Uh, I want to talk about uh, promoters a bit later on. But let's move on to... Well, we'll take a step back slightly, but the Burns fight on Saturday. Um, which out of you two has the most controversial point? <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't a world title fight, was it? I mean, it had a world title attached to it, the WBA title, but it wasn't a world title fight. And Michelle de Rocco was shite. 
Like, absolutely dreadful. Uh, Burns is past his best. The Burns in his prime of, you know, you're going back six years or so now. The times when he had De Rocco in, not even in trouble, but when he was starting to get some good work out of that jab, he would stand in the pocket six years ago and actually trade with him and, like, go to war with him a bit, which he wasn't. As soon as he was starting to get De Rocco in a little bit of trouble, he was then backing off again and letting him, you know, get a breather. Um, which isn't isn't a peak Ricky Burns by any means. Like fair play, he's won that title. He's a three weight world champion on paper, and that's all it is. Frankly, like there are so many light welterweights out there. You know, you got Crawford Postel coming up. Put him in with them, and he gets smashed by Craw- uh, Crawford again. Like it's as simple as that. He's not the best in that division by any means. I saw the fight, and it's hard. It's hard to really break it down. Really. I'm looking at Ricky Burns saying you're a 33-year-old man that's boxed for the best part of 20-odd years now. And your right hand doesn't look like you've ever really practiced it. It was a really crude way of throwing a right hand where you can see why guys like Crawford, you know, had their way with, with Ricky Burns because he's he's a very basic boxer. He's super fit and he's super tough, but he is incredibly basic and very, very limited. Where does he go next? I'm sure they will dig up someone like a Yuriorkis Gamboa and bring him over to the UK because if when you're hearing Ricky Burnside can still make 135, what he's saying is, I'm not fighting any true 140 guys. I'm not fighting a Postal. I'm not fighting a Crawford. I'm going to fight someone like a Gamboa who's a name and who has campaigned at 135 and will fight because I might have the size advantage. You know, this is a guy who you know, is probably getting battered about in sparring by Conor Ben and O'Hara Davis. If so. he's getting battered about by Conor Ben, he should be embarrassed based on Conor Ben on Saturday night. <laughs> what the fuck is he doing on matchroom shows? Like, honestly, he nearly got chinned by a journeyman. Like, he, I know he's only two fights yeah. in, but he ought to be doing that in the quiet somewhere, not on the undercard of world title fights, which is what he's doing. Yeah, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast before, but a view I've always had is Eddie Hearn should really be farming out his talent and they should be working on and, and I know politics doesn't allow this, but they should be on these Frank Warren shows and they should be on these Haymaker shows because they're sufficiently off the grid that you can learn your trade. They are. And, and, if, you, yeah. if you're a Premier League football club and you've got a promising 16, 17-year-old, you don't put them into the first team to find out how they're going to get on. You loan them out down the leagues a bit and you get them that experience. It's the same principle. It's painful. Um, so you've got, you know, all these young guys. I'd like to see Conor Ben do well. I think he needs a few more four and six rounders. You know, he's he's relatively green. You know, what's it, 20 amateur bouts? You've had two professional. And sparring's cool. And, you know, to be honest, sparring is sparring. There's n- nothing beats walking out under the lights. Nothing beats having to fight someone who's there to take your head off. So he's learning. And I think he's probably a four or five year journey in terms of being a superstar. I'm gonna say he never makes it to being a superstar. I don't. He's too erratic for me. He's. I'd like to be proven wrong because he's exciting to watch. I'm not criticizing him as a fighter like in that sense because I really enjoy watching him because he's on the edge of losing at any point. And if he got put in with someone who was a proper danger who could punch, which he's only two fights in, so he shouldn't be. He should be given that opportunity to learn. But if that's how they're gonna treat him, putting him on those shows. They can't string it out for too long, I'd suspect, putting him in with journeyman. Um, yeah, it, <laughs> he's 
he's a danger to himself if he keeps that style that he's got. But it's exciting to watch in the same sense. He's going to be, you know, he's going to have a, a, a ceiling to his uh, to his achievements. Yeah, because you have to contrast him with Tyrone Nurse, who was also on that card against Willie Limond, and the skill level that Nurse had was absolutely brilliant. Um, I was impressed with a lot of the head movement. Very, very slippery. Um, once he got once he got his eye in and his timing in, just the punch variety, the way he could change angles, the way he could change levels of attack. Um, very, very impressive. Found him slightly lazy in the beginning um, what, until he got his confidence in. But you wonder how far he can go in terms of, you know, a 140 fighter. But at 5'11", the guy could box yeah. it welterweight comfortably. Yeah, I mean, he, he seems to take time off during fight or lose concentration. I don't know what it is, but he did the same with Chris Jenkins and let Chris Jenkins back in in both of their fights. I know the first one, he probably should have got the victory, uh, but it's called a draw. Um, but Chris Jenkins, you know, you, you know what Chris Jenkins is going to do, which is just come forward relentlessly and look to fight. And it was almost in that fight as if Nurse kind of took his foot off a little bit of lost concentration, which is crazy to do with someone like uh, Chris Jenkins. But... Yeah, Willie Lemon's been out the ring. He's not fought since 2014. This was his comeback fight, so it's you know it's not the best opposition in the world by any means. Or the uh, Lemon in his day was a British title holder himself. Um, you know that's probably the last we're going to see of him in a British ring. Um, but Nurse looked really, really. <laughs> he's like a Tesco value Mayweather, isn't he? He's like <laughs> there's he's got all the skills, just not quite to the same level. <laughs> Agreed. Um. It's a weird one to explain because you look at him, but there's a lack of intensity, if that makes sense. Yeah. So a good fighter for me has intensity in everything they do, whether you're jabbing or whether you're just stepping backwards. There's an intensity that says, you know, this is a do or die moment. And I don't think Nurse boxes with that do or die mentality and it hurts him. But once he gets hold of that, then a lot of people are in trouble. Right, well, that's great. You've uh, both hammered it to death there. Um, that's n- nicely wrapped up our fights from this weekend. Can I just jump in and just a couple, couple of quick ones in America? So, Jarrell Miller, as they call him, Big Baby, he had a win, which I think will push him into the top 10 of most governing bodies. Um, most people, you know, you, you get your smart, hardcore boxing fans started to talk about him versus Joshua. Probably not. Be a good fight for Dillian White at some point this year. I think stylistically they're quite similar, quite similar builds, except uh, Miller probably carries three stone more. But I think that would be a really good fight if Eddie Hearn could make that one happen. I think the the, the problem with the American heavyweights is that you've got this wash now coming through of the likes of Miller, uh, Washington, Brizuela, uh, Wilder kind of started it. And then you've got uh, Charles Martin as well that all came through or coming through around the same time, building up these impressive uh, winning records. You know, their their resumes look very good. Um, I don't know an awful lot about Miller, if I'm honest, but is he kind of, is he, does he look better than Charles Martin? So the things I the things I took away from him, which I liked were, number one, once he's in range, there's a jab. Um, and, uh, you know, podcast listeners will know this. For me, the jab is everything. A box without a jab is like a man without a penis. Simple as. <laughs> You know, you like, oh, you wonder how they survive. You know, w- 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 so what the hell do you do with yourself? You know? <laughs> For so, more strange metaphors, uh, we'll just crack them with Terry. So, so, so I was really excited by the fact that every time he stepped in, he stepped in behind a jab with a penis. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're similar length. I don't know. <laughs> it's 
big baby for a reason, right? <laughs> That's why he's a heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, so, so look good. Jabs to the head, jabs to the body. Works combinations. Um, the guy he did, he dropped him four times. Or a couple of body shots in there that dropped him. So, uh, you know, as a technician, you look at him and go, okay, the fundamentals are there. That's good. You just want to see him tested. You know, let him fight a guy like Amin Mansour who will bring it to you relentlessly for at least six rounds. Let's see if he can cope in those sorts of environments. And then then let's start talking about him as a guy who can challenge for world titles. Because right now, you see, a, you see a fair bit of potential, but, you know, it's still yet to be confirmed. Okay, any more shocking surprises of talking points? Is, was there any heavyweight fights in Kazakhstan or anything you want to talk about or this weekend? Or have we covered sufficiently the fights from the weekend? <laughs> I don't want to stumble myself again. Um, I don't know. And like anyone, you know, any of the listeners, anything happen outside of Chicago? Rock, a shout, a Yates's involving <laughs> two rather large men send swinging punches. Yeah, send us videos. Send we'll in. analyze them. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Okay. I want to talk about uh, a few things, but promoters is what I wanted to go to. Uh, we had a listener's question come in from Sam Khan. <laughs> Uh, she's a big fan of our musical interview. Yeah, she definitely uh, she she will be now or won't be now or whatever. <laughs> but yes, yeah, Sam, ringtone. Sam, <laughs> Sam Khan sent in a message, and she wanted to know: Is it worse to have a promoter who exploits your talent, or one that ignores its value and opportunity that it brings? And that's uh, I think that was in reference to Kel Brook, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So uh, discussing with the various bits, and that was a question that kind of came out of it. Um, I think it's quite a. A good question. So I suppose if you look at it in terms of exploits your talent or one that ignores, um, you know, its value and opportunity. So if you think of the very lowest of the <laughs> the gene pool of boxers in terms of the journeyman side of it. Now, I, I don't mean that as harshly as it sounds, but they're the ones that get shipped up and down the country. So if you're talking about um, ones that exploit your talent, like there's a there's a value in being a journeyman with a good manager. So the likes of Carl Greaves was always uh, seen as somebody that could do that. There was a guy up in Birmingham that predates John Pegg, and I can't remember what his name is off the top of my head. He was renowned for having a stable of journeymen that were just like sent around the country with the explicit intent of losing. Um, so, you know, if you looked at it from that end, it's, you know, those ones that exploit your talent, um, they're exploiting it to the utmost. So then you've got the other ones that have exploited talents that... Uh, you'd have to think someone like Amir Khan, for instance, like when he goes to fight Canelo, is that exploiting his talent? Quite possibly. Like I'm sure there's an element or there's a huge element of it that Khan wanted that fight. But on the other hand, was it wise for him to go out there when you know, 99% of the world would say that he's probably going to get put on his ass quite horrifically, which he did. Um, and then the other side of it, yeah, the ones that ignore its value and opportunity. So Kel Brook, I think, is the prime example here of someone that, you know, is it ignored? I think it's probably overlooked now uh, with the, you know, I know Terry's kind of spoken about it before, but the onset of the Joshua hype train, there isn't room necessarily to build Kel Brook as he probably should be. Um, I'll hand it over, I suppose, at that point. So if we take Kel Brook and we look at Kel Brook, if he just said Eddie Hearn as a manager, the first thing Eddie Hearn would say is, you need to be in America. There's nothing for you in the UK. You need to be in America. And you'd have an exact mirror of Nigel Benn after his loss to Michael Watson, where he went to the States and he fought Doug DeWitt 
and then basically demolished Iran Barkley too because that's where all the action was in the middleweight division. So he built a name out there in the States. He was marketable. Don King wanted to sign him. And, you know, that's why Nigel Benn is better regarded in the States than Chris Eubank is. So Kelbrook's best destination at the moment is the United States. Everyone in the sport knows that. Now, what's best for Eddie Hearn is Kel Brook to fill arenas in the UK because he gets a far bigger share of the revenue. Problem being, it costs them more to bring people over. So, so while they have common goals, Eddie Hearn's ambitions and Kel Brook's ambitions pull in vastly different ways. And someone needs to be advising Kel. Who's Brook's manager? I'm sure it's Eddie Hearn as well. Is it? See, I'm sure it's a 360 deal that he has because... Otherwise, someone would have just said, look, just go to the States, take $2 million to fight Danny Garcia. I'm not not sure it is Hearn, because I remember Hearn a while back doing an interview where he was criticising the McGuigans with Frampton, saying about the um, opposition of being promoter and manager. So the manager trying to do the best for your career, the promoter trying to do the best promotion of your next fight, essentially. So... He was quite opposed at the time to somebody being both manager and promoter. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe he is, but I think uh, Matchroom, yeah, I think it's all in house because Froch was who who managed Froch? I don't know. I love him. So Froch was kind of self managed but supported by the Hearns. Yeah, uh, I think he was always self managed, though, wasn't he? From the, but you know, Josh Warrington isn't managed by Hearn, for instance. No, so he's, he's managed by Dave Caldwell. Is it or is it Steve Wood? Oh, sorry, oh, sorry, my mistake. I, I keep getting the McDonald's and the Warrington's mixed up. Uh, I'm sure it's Steve Wood, yeah. possibly. Uh, it's one of the northern ones, but yeah, um, I know Hearn doesn't have an involvement in that side of it, just the promotional. But yeah, as for Brooke, uh, I think you're right. If somebody could get a hold of him <laughs> and move him out of Sheffield, I think they would be doing him a big favour. There's got to be something said, and I'm sure we've said it before, but um, in reference to this, it seems applicable as well that. No matter how good you are as a boxer, to some extent, you are at the mercy of how strong the divisions that you're capable of fighting are at that point, are you not? Because if someone like, say, Anthony Joshua came along, say, 10 years ago, when um, when you're sort of like looking at the end of Lewis's era and there's a dearth of top quality heavyweights, all right, he sit, say he sits at the top of that tree for 10 years, no, but, but doesn't really have any challenging fights, that then affects his legacy, does it not? No. No, nobody's going to look badly at Vladimir Klitschko's legacy for dominating the heavyweight division for the last 10 years. Like, Yes, it might have been nice if he had more challenges when he was at his peak years, but I don't think you could necessarily like criticise. It's the job then of the promoter, and that's what Hearn is very, very good at, is to make your opposition seem as good as possible. <laughs> that's ultimately... Like Shannon Briggs yeah. and the Cobra. <laughs> that's what the job of a promoter is, is to make your opponent seem credible. Yeah. You know, you have to give fans a reason to believe. So if someone says to me, you know, there's a boxing show, my first question is, why should I get excited about this? And that's what a promoter does. He gives you the reasons to get excited. He'll say, look, okay, there's no well-known talent here, but I've got five prospects. They're all in step-up fights against solid competitors. I don't expect all of them to win, which lets you know why I'm doing this, because I want to find out who the best is. I think for too long, we've had promoters... You know, looking out for their own interests. So you remember the times when we had, you know, all those guys at 140, I think it was, it was like Chris Evangelou, Danny Connor, and all they weren't really fighting each other. 
and you're thinking to yourself, all of you are trying to sell me tickets, but I just want to know who's the best in London out of the lot of you. Yeah, Ricky Boylan, I think, was in there as well, wasn't he? And- yeah, all, all, all of those guys. And it was frustrating. Johnny Gartner was in that mix as well. It was frustrating because you know, everyone's managers pulling them in a different direction. My take on it is this. In the old days, um, and a guy who I come on to talk to, Daryl Williams, who, fantastic super middleweight prospect, very much off the radar. But when he was coming up, he was watched over by Dean Powell. And, you know, I've met Dean Powell a couple of times. The guy really knows the sport. So half an hour talking to Dean Powell is invaluable education for every fighter. Um, you know, if these you know if these young fighters have time to spend, you know, half an hour with a Gary Logan, for example, you know, th- these are all educational because these guys know the game. They know who's who and they know what the situations are. So in those situations, it's fantastic to have management like that. But let's not blame the managers. The number of times I've said to fighters, do you read your contract? And they look at me and go, no. And then I say to them, so how can you have any expectation of your promoter, of your manager, if you don't know what the contract says? I'll read a contract. And if it says, you know, you're to get paid 20% of all receipts, then I'll say, look, are you getting 20% of all receipts? And most, most fighters will look at you blank and go, I don't know. So it's a two-way thing. Um... I've learned this as a boxing coach in my own right. Step number one, I have to be the guy that knows this stuff on my side of the fence. Step number two, the boxer then has to tell me what works and what doesn't work and also has to expect me to be the best on a daily basis. That's how I look at it. And it should be the same with a manager and a fighter. The The fighter should be saying, why am I not the best in the world? What do I need to do to be the best in the world? As soon as you agree that, then you're working to a plan. Okay, a question that then we sweep quite nicely into on on that basis then is, um, like you have disputes within boxing, you have uh, play, uh, boxers who will then sign you know, some sign contracts and not necessarily read them or whatever. Um, and in the real world, there are certain solutions to um, these problems where people, the uh, people at the bottom of the pile, let's say, um, get trodden on, and then they club together. Um, we have unions. So you spoke about uh, unionising boxing. Um, you sort of aired it as we were chatting off air. The question I have then is, should boxing be unionised, and, and what are the pros and cons that would come along with that? Um, so first and foremost, all industries that are unionised tend to earn more. So that's always a, a powerful incentive for boxers to club together. Secondly, where you can unionise you're able to then drive standards. Um, you know, look at the powerful unions. For example, you know, when it comes to Scotch whiskey, which is an artesian spirit, you know, you can only really distill Scotch whiskey in a certain area. You know, it's clearly defined, and as a result, there's a premium on that product. Um, cognac is the same thing as well. If you could take boxing, and I think we should. Number one, I'll I'd prohibit all all forms of combat forms of public combat that are unlicensed i'd just make it legal for a start and then you know if you want your mixed martial arts that would be licensed by its own governing body and boxing would be licensed by its own governing body and it would only be the british board that could allow boxing bouts to happen that's the first thing i'd do so and it's no disrespect to all the other guys who are doing their things but you know these these fights in leisure centers in swindon where people are getting 300 quid a night and that's no governmental change though isn't it rather yeah, than but I think that has to come yeah I, I don't see it coming from inside the industry I think it comes from outside the industry and then once you do that you can have a union and what the union's responsibility should be is to protect the fighters and you know all these things around 
protecting guys coming into the sport in terms of education, making sure that they understand what contracts are, helping them out when they, you know, when they negotiate those first few contracts or, you know, all of these small things that the PFA does for footballers, um, the PRA does for rugby players, just making sure that your members are in the strongest possible position. And they can act as a voice where, you know, if there's a fighter who is, you know, being blackballed, we'll say, for example, you can have those sorts of discussions as well. I just don't think as long as fighters remain individual, I don't see the sport ever improving because Eddie Hearn can just say, I'm not putting him on Sky. And there's no way of the fighters saying we want more safety or we want a greater share of proceeds, which is where I think boxing needs to go. But those politics would still exist with or without a union. So, you know, somebody like Hearn, if he doesn't fancy your face, then, you know, he's still not going to show you. You know, you could still end up on Box Nation or Channel 5 or Sky. Like, having a union won't overcome that hurdle. I don't see how it possibly... You can't enforce Eddie Hearn to show a fighter that he doesn't want to show. No, but if you look at Equity, for example, the Actors' Union... If a director gets a reputation, then no equity members will work with that director. So the director now has an incentive to keep the union happy. And so if you, let's just say theoretically, you had Joshua, Hay, Eubank Jr., those sort, that ilk of fighter in a union, you couldn't be an ass to the union because essentially the union would look at you and go, what cards are you going to put on if these guys don't show up? Oh, but do we want to get to a point where people are threatening to strike... <laughs> surely at that point like if you were threatening to strike you would probably be thinking of leaving the union if you wanted to be an active fighter who made your money through fighting would you want to be associated to a group of people that threatened to strike when actually all you want to do is go out and you know cement a legacy make some money but but here's the point there's some people who can already do that but what about the others who can't what about the others who are larry akandaya for example one of the most talented guys at 147 super skillful super talented tough as nails should be on a bigger stage but isn't why no one really knows why but i'm sure he'd like to know what he's done wrong because you know he was fantastic in prize fighter and i know he had some personal issues but he's still a fantastic boxer so these sorts of fighters you know you look at and go maybe they need the union's protection the eubank juniors don't i completely agree the top end don't need it as in any the richest five percent or whatever and the best known five percent don't need it but uh, you know larry akandai is a brilliant example like what if a union existed how could they help larry get a better profile and better fights than what he gets at present well number one he's not on any of the major networks so the uh, you can have a union rep go over and go why is he on a network and okay Masham could give a reason it might not be true but another guy could give a reason but the union can then say look we you all- can't force eddie hearn to say you have to take on larry akandai a union probably could. No, nah, you couldn't. Like it's a private business. At the end well, of the well, day, a private well, like if he wants talent, if he sees talent in someone, or let's turn it the other way around, if someone like Josh Warrington sells ten thousand tickets to a fight, and Larry Ekandayu sells a hundred okay. tickets to a fight, say which one is Eddie Hearn going to take on? Irrespective of like, they could have the same amount of talent. I disagree. They have Ekandayu has more more talent. But but my my whole argument is. It depends on whether we look at the individual or the collective. So for me, I look at boxing as a collective because you meet guys like, you know, the, the old guys, like the Dennis Andrews, and, you know, I can't tell that I can't tell him to be more careful with his money, but you wish the sport had looked after someone like a Dennis Andrews a lot better. And you say, you know, okay, once a promoter's done with you, you tend to get thrown to the scrap heap. You know, I've seen Darren Hamilton. Yep. You know, he's somewhat upset about how he was treated in the sport. And I'm sure... If, if we put a poll out to old boxers, they could list a lot of things in the sport that are wrong. 
and a lot of those things a union would fix. The key thing for me is looking after your fighters after they've retired. I completely agree. Like on the way up and after they've retired, there's a benefit. But when they're reaching their peak or whatever, to me, there's no benefit to them at that point because irrespective of what a union can say, you can't make a private business sign a fighter they don't want to sign. No, but I guess it's not so much about forcing them to sign. It's more around you have a union and, you know, let's just say you legislate and say, you can only use licensed boxes. A condition of that license is that you're part of the union. So now the union has all of the labor. So you have to deal with the union if you want things to happen. So what will happen, it's like any business relationship. If you and I have a business relationship, I'm going to give in on one point so I can get something on another point. So there are ways of making things happen, if that makes sense. So you don't have to say, look, make Larry Akindaya top of the card, but you can say, look, Put him on the card. See what the reception is. If he doesn't get the positive reaction, at least we've tried. You know, there, 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 are, there are often ways of making these things happen. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are enough messed up things in boxing. God, we discuss them every week, right? That we need to find ways of fixing them. I think unionizing is a great way of protecting the long-term interests of the fighter. And as a coach, that's one thing I think about. I think, what's going to happen to to my guys in their 40s? Are they going agree. to be okay? You know, 90% of fighters don't make a full-time living out of boxing. 90% of them are doing something else. Um, they don't make enough money out of boxing. It's not going to set them for life. There's the top end that will, the Frotch, the Joshua, the Brook, the Khan, etc., that will pay off their mortgage You know, by the time they hit their 30s and they're set for life. But that's a very, very, very tip of the iceberg. The rest of the, you know, the community, the um, those that are employed within the sport, they're not getting that out of it. And you're right, like for those people getting that education about what to do with the small amounts of money that you do get, would be beneficial, I'm sure. Okay, well, you've uh, both presented articulate points there. My my fear would immediately be that they split into about twelve different unions because certain certain. Uh, Governing bodies wouldn't recognise certain unions. Oh, I don't know. And maybe it wouldn't happen. Maybe it would. Right, I want to move on to a uh, the Lucien Butte positive test. Uh, he's now a doper, and that was congratulations, post- Lucien. <laughs> that was post Badu Jack, uh, was it not? So discuss Terry. I know you've got some uh, views on this. It's another one. Um, I'm more than confident that you know. He's probably not the worst of the offenders. If you're getting pinged for Osterine, you're really not the worst of the offenders. So just for the listeners, essentially what Osterine is, is they call them SAMs. It's a specific androgen receptor modulator, um, which is a very technical way of saying what it does is it focuses the androgenic activity precisely on the muscle. What the hell is an androgenic activity? Um, So... Steroids androgenic. What they do is they make you bigger. Right. But the problem with steroids is steroids make everything bigger. So your heart gets bigger. Is that what that American heavyweight's been on? It's just <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese, I think. He's got his big knob that we were talking about earlier. So. Yeah, Ch- Chuck E. Cheese will do that for you. <laughs> He's been on Schlongadenic. <laughs> so in essence, what it, yeah, so steroids do that, but they're, they're very imprecise because everything gets bigger and they're liver toxic. So... You know, that's why you see a lot of professional wrestlers dying in their late 40s, early 50s, because you basically shred your body. Psalms have a lesser effect, but they do something similar. So they help you repair your muscles quicker. So you can understand why someone like Butte would take it. You're having, you know, two or three sessions a day. You're knackered, you're broken, and you don't want to take steroids, but you want a way of recovering. So he's probably got that 
stack with some form of growth hormone substitute or some form of growth hormone activator and he just hasn't come off quickly enough and they've pinged him on the test and that's why they talk about cycling so yeah. you know doing it out of because you get tested throughout camp like when you've got a fighter range but you don't get tested out of camp exactly um, and it's always been my theory why guys fight twice a year because you can fight twice a year break it down into in very crude terms four 12-week slots you get you get doped up to your eyeballs Floyd Mayweather <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised no, not that Mayweather cough again yeah yeah I can't <laughs> get rid of it but look at boxing now um we've got guys throwing more punches than ever and I know we've discussed this before that says every sport's improved but if we take the 100 meters for example the biggest changes in the 100 meter time haven't come from athletes getting better at training they've come from oh god they've come from rubberized tracks they've come from (laughs) but this is true so so boxing is unique in that there are no technical advantages you can have to make you a better fighter so you're relying on your training and pretty much your nutrition to get you through and what other sports show us is they only have a marginal benefit so then you say what where where does this where does the rest of it come from and the truth is it comes from guys putting stuff in their system and it can be stuff that's allowed like creatine, which I don't understand why creatine's allowed and osterine isn't, which is what Buse got done for. I don't see what the real difference is. We don't know the long-term health implications of either of those. Um, you know, so you can do that all the way through to guys who are taking the powerful steroids like DECA in order to get bigger and to sustain that weight. Yeah, creatine is slightly different to steroids, though, in the sense that creatine is a delivery system for getting mus- uh, energy, ATP, into your muscles, like deeper into your muscles. It's not really a steroid. In fact, it's not a steroid. No, no, it's not a steroid, but it's a performance-enhancing substance. Yeah, okay. I- agreed. Yeah, so... So so. So you're wondering where the line should be drawn. Yeah, I'm sorry. Where, where do you actually draw the line? Are, you, are we drawing the line based on you could get harmed in the long term, or are we drawing the line on actually, do you know what? This is just stuff we don't understand, so we're banning it. I mean, that's always been the case, though, isn't it? I mean, um, you look at someone like Lance Armstrong, and basically, the, the, he was he was running techniques that, at the very beginning of his time when he was doping, quite frankly, they didn't even know that you could do that. I mean, he was it, we were drawing blood, storing it, and then injecting that blood back into his system to have more blood in his system, more red blood cells, etc., etc. Now, the only reason that got banned is because they found out that it happens. Like, nobody knew. Yeah. So it's only when they find out and they think, oh, actually, that, that, that can't be fair. So it's retrospectively, it gets punished. But actually, at the time, it's legal, because only because it's not legal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, but look, let's go back to the 60s and 70s. Before they actually made steroids a banned substance, do you really think there weren't people taking steroids <laughs> then? Do people really think Ken Norton did all of that naturally? No. It was just that in those days, there wasn't the doping control we have now. And, you know, those guys were probably on stuff. They were probably on, you know, amphetamines or amphetamine analogs. The truth is, when you're doing this for a living, you're going to steal any advantage that you can. There's very small advantages you can get from drugs and very large advantages. And if the risk of getting caught is as minimal as it is, which, let's be honest, like although we hear about people getting caught, there's probably you know, 50, 60, 100 times more that don't get caught. Look at right. Aiba. Not a single drug test on an amateur boxer that was, in 2015. That was <laughs> that was One in 2014, three in 2013. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I just think the amount of money that's available if you make a huge success of boxing, like the risk of getting caught, like small hall shows, small hall shows up and down the country. Nobody's testing anyone on small hall shows. Like to the best, I'm sure there's probably token tests that take course, you know, during the year. I I don't know enough about it, but it's limit is so limited that the risk of taking it and the risk of getting caught is so minimal that you might as well do it like for the reward that you're going to get if you become the pinnacle of the sport you know that if you said like boxing becoming world champion is like 100 percent, i'm pretty sure up until 80 to 85 percent your amount of drug testing that you have to undertake is fuck all frankly I was uh, listening to someone the other day talking about the uh, German football team. Do either, uh, did either of you tell me about this? No, it wasn't. Okay. So at the end of the uh, the German, I think it was the victory in Euro 96, uh, or the victory over England in Euro 96, Yeah. the uh, drug testers went into the changing room and said, right, we want these three blokes for testing. <laughs> and the German, the German team went, nah, he's having a shower, he's in the bath, he's doing this. <laughs> So here's three other guys you can test. And that was okay. Like, they just went, yeah, we'll just just test you for it. Jesus. <laughs> so that just goes to show you, like, until they're... I, it always surprises me. This this summer you've got the Olympics. And I've heard Steve Backley's massively anti-doping. He, he hates it. And for someone who's won so many silver medals, you can probably understand. <laughs> he might be a bit bitter against the fact that somebody would... Um... Chuck a stick further than he could. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like... Yeah, what always baffles me though is when they have the inevitable conversation at the Olympics of, do you think there's people? Do you think there's people at these at the, these games taking taking drugs, or whatever? They have this. It's almost like they don't say, well, you can never tell. Perhaps there are some, maybe blah blah blah. It's never sitting fencing. There are, especially Steve Backley is one of the main culprits that goes, nope, absolutely not. I reckon this sport is majority clean. In fact, it's all clean, and they just whitewash the entire thing. Whereas going back to what we'd said, it, it's insanely naive to think that there's not at least 20% at any time of athletes taking drugs in some way not I'm not talking about recreational drugs I'm talking some form of enhancement that eventually will get either eventually will get banned or eventually there'll be a test to prove it you know retro uh, later down the line so so I've had a conversation with a boxing coach um let me not reveal anything further other than to say He's been in this game a long time. What colour hair has he got? <laughs> Same colour as your hat. <laughs> Makes no sense to the listeners. Why I love that. What colour has he got? <laughs> Come on, it's like guess who. So, so we had a conversation about this, and what's happening now essentially is, it's not like the old days where someone like Ben Johnson would would pump himself up with five times the amount of testosterone a human being would normally have. So what they do now is they go, you know, forget the cycling, we're going to low dose for the whole season. And what low dosing is, is every every week you get your blood checked to make sure you wouldn't fail a test. And they'll keep putting enough testosterone in you. So you, so you maximize that without ever triggering a test. You do exactly the same thing with your EPO. So they measure your blood work every week. You know, they measure your growth hormone levels and they let you go right up into, right up to the ceiling. So you might have, you know, a testosterone level of 500 units per deciliter and you fail a drug test at 1300. So you can more than double what you'd naturally have, which is obviously a performance advantage, right? Um, what's the EPO? EPO is 49 units per deciliter, I think, before you trigger anything. 
And most people operated above 35 to 40. So if you're going from 35 to 49, you're increasing your red, red blood cell count by something like maybe 30%, which is a big deal in boxing, which is a stamina-driven sport. So you're not cheating in the sense that you failed a test. And this is probably what Eddie Hearn is, means when he says, look, none of my boxers failed drug tests, which is true. <laughs> that is perfectly true. But... Are they doing it by non-nefarious means yeah so so instead of instead of gaining 30 pounds of muscle in three months like you did before running the risk of failing a test you say well, actually do you know what? i'm going to gain it over the year never fail a test and i can still box at this level because what two years down the line all of this accumulated advantage will mean something what level was that coach at without revealing any details but that doesn't sound like somebody who's handling people three or four fights into a career that sounds like the kind of effort you'd go to for somebody at the top end of the sport Yep, and you need money for that. Yeah, exactly. That, that's what it's coming down to. Is that somebody you need, you need money and an infrastructure behind that. Yeah, like the the infrastructure is scalable. If you had fifty fighters doing it, the money you need those fifty fighters. That's not going to be people at the start of their career. That's people that are looking for those advantages at the top end. So yeah, so that there are guys boxing in their thirties who are taking stack loads of growth hormone. Why? Because you're not looking that thin and ripped unless you're taking various forms of growth hormone or you're on the clenbuterol and all these sorts of things that aren't good for you. But, you know, they're giving us 30-something-year-old boxers who look like the guys did in their 20s back in the day. So you look at it and you go, everyone's on something to a degree. It's just around how professional is the infrastructure behind you. I would completely and utterly, like, I'm so cynical about it that, you know, I think there's so many that will get... Well, no, saying that, there's so many that won't get caught that are on something. Like, frankly, as Andy said earlier, like, you've got your head in the sand if you think it is a clean sport. Um, the only thing I would ever, I think we were discussing this earlier a little bit, the only thing I would put against that is the view that, uh, I was saying this before we started recording about, um, the view that boxing was so much better, you know, boxers were so much better back in the 60s, 70s. I said the sport... The kind of, you know, the historians and the um, those that kind of and look back at the sport and the knowledge, Spencer Fearon, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll mention that. Um, you know, these people will always harp on about how great it was back in the 50s, 60s, 70s uh, and how those fighters were better than what we've got today. But every other sport that I can think of, so, you know, football, rugby, cricket, etc., etc., like all of these, and let's not be, again, naive about it. I'm sure they're juiced off their tits as well, frankly, but... Um, there's a general consensus that footballers now have the advantage of science and nutrition and all these things behind them to make their bodies function so much better than their predecessors of, of years gone by. So why is it that we don't believe boxers, and I'm purely playing devil's advocate here because I don't believe boxers, but why is it that we don't believe boxers couldn't be taken advantage of those same science and nutritional um, expertise that make footballers better than those footballers 50 years ago? Um, so I think, so team sports are are complex because there's a whole range of things you can do. So you can make people play better as a team. You know, you can be far more tactically savvy. You can play around with the variables in a game of football or rugby more than you can in boxing, where it's essentially two people. So you then look at other sports and you say, okay, what's the sport similar to boxing? Something like tennis, for example. Look at what's happening in tennis. Guys are getting pinged left, right, and center. Sharapova got done for Meldonium. Yeah. Which 
if you if you look at the people getting pinned for meldonium, you think there was a heart disease crisis in Russia at the moment. If we're being honest, <laughs> so it seems that the, the the elite athletes, the fittest people in in the world, essentially all have heart problems, which seems counterintuitive. So you look at tennis, and people always ask, you know, could could someone like a Pete Sampras compete with Federer now? Has much changed in tennis? You're hitting the ball and running around, right? And it's still, you know, those guys are playing five-hour games then they're playing five-hour games now. The pr- things that are probably different are racket technology, trainer technology, tops that take moisture away from you. All these small things that accumulate to, even if it's a 3% advantage, it's enough that the modern guy will win. I don't know if you have all of those same advantages in boxing. Okay, you can change diet and you can change the way people train. I think the biggest difference is just in training methods. So in the old days, they'd always tell you, don't touch weights. Now we know that you can touch weights and you can receive a massive advantage. But in terms of stamina, guys are still running now, right? Guys are still doing the long runs now. All that's changes in footwear. So I think there are less variables to play with in boxing, which is one of the great things about boxing because the old guard and the new guard are never that far apart. It's still essentially the same sport. Unlike Formula One, where you look at a car from the 70s yeah, yeah. and from now immeasurable so i think boxing is great because it's low tech um but is it a clean sport someone will have to convince me because i'm becoming increasingly cynical i i you know i'm looking at punch outputs now and i'm saying to myself what can you possibly be doing that Hagler wasn't doing <laughs> you know show me what you were doing that hearns wasn't doing because when hearns crossed 30 his punch output dropped dropped significantly so i think for me doping concerns me i'm a coach and i know it happens in the amateur game and that's what worries me the most is that you know you've got big lads knocking lumps out of each other i don't want a guy there who's taking all kinds of substances like deca which increases your contractile strength which is essentially saying i can punch harder because i'm injecting the stuff in my ass and that worries me so that's why I'm on a serious crusade against this and I don't think people should be doing it. If you're a guy that wants to look good in a nightclub on a Friday night, take whatever you want. I'm not <laughs> going to judge you. But not when you're jumping in the ring with someone who's got to go home to their family and friends. You know, there, there's a degree of honour required and I think doping violates that. Yeah. I mean, I, to end it, like I think if you look at the Premier League, how many doping violations has there been in the last five years? Maybe one or two. The uh, fact that you probably the first person that comes to mind is Rio Ferdinand for missing a doping yeah. and and think how long ago but, that was. I mean, it screams volumes. Failed it? drugs tests. I can think maybe one or two. There was that Sarko recently for Liverpool. Yeah. Um, Adrian Mutu. Mutu, yeah. But I mean, that's that's cocaine yeah. and something else. So if you think every squad of players is say twenty two, you've got twenty teams in there. That's four hundred and forty. Is it uh, players in the Premier League at any one time? Drop that down to the championship because there's big money, 880. Over the last 10 years, that's nearly 9,000 players and not one of them has been done for drug taking. And the amount of fucking money those people are making and the amount of money that gets pumped into football at the very top level, if you're telling me that not one person in that sport has been taking drugs to get the advantage to get to the very top of it, then you're fucking mental. I think the problem, the biggest problem on these situations lies in the fact that Let's face it, it, it takes someone to drive the anti-doping program forward. 
um, no one in the Premier League wants to see players start getting done for doping. It's not beneficial to anyone, and there's so many millions and millions of pounds based on it that it's going to get covered up to some extent. And I believe that's also the the story. I mean, fuck me. Floyd Mayweather was caught with an IV drip the night before the Manny Pacquiao fight in this hotel, which is outlawed in the rules of the, the terms of that fight. He was caught with it, and they still let the fight go ahead because you're not going to cancel that fight the night before because Mayweather's got an IV drip in his arm. And, <laughs> and that's the point. The point is, you know, people want to believe it's clean, but they also want to be entertained by the best fighting the best. It's on the fans to start asking these questions. The fans have to start saying, are these guys really clean? Yeah. You know? If you're the very best in the world and you've got the biggest fight monetarily in history the next day and you're caught in your hotel room using something you're not meant to be using, an IV drip, and yet everybody turns a blind eye to it and the fight goes ahead, there's a f- <laughs> there's a problem there. There's a problem. Uh, and that is essentially corruption, isn't it? That's what it boils down it's 100%. to. 100%. Okay, let's move on. Um, completely bookended. I think we've some great, uh, had some great talking points there. Uh, I want to talk about Liam Smith's fight next weekend. Uh, okay, so he's defending his WBO light middleweight super welterweight um, world title against Pedrag Radjosevic, I think it's pronounced possibly. Um, I'm sure it is. You made so, it was so fluid. Off your yeah, time. it was so confidently stated. <laughs> I don't give a fuck about this fight at all. Like Liam Smith is ranked, I think... If you look on BoxRec, which isn't always right, I completely appreciate, but you can take it as an indicative value. He's ranked independently 20th, I think, in the world at that weight. This Pedrak Giza uh, is ranked about 58th, I think, at light middle. And this is a world title fight. And this is after he defended the title against Jimmy Kelly, which you and I were at, right, on the Andy Lee, Billy Joe Saunders undercard. So you've got a world title holder who's fought... Jimmy Kelly, who, like, even as an avid boxing fan, I didn't know Jimmy Kelly before that fight, and he's British. Like, what does that tell you about it? And he'd only ever fought people, I think, with losing records, and he got a world title fight because Frank Warren and co. had manipulated the WBO to get him into the top 15 to pick him as a voluntary. How on earth Pedrag Radajevic is able to qualify for this, it's beyond me. 2015's Boxing uh, Promoter of the Year, WBO Boxing, <laughs> yes. Frank Warren. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird how he would manipulate that situation to his advantage. What do you reckon, Terry? I don't care about this fight. I just, I just <laughs> don't care about it. Um, it's nothing against Liam Smith. I think Liam Smith, <laughs> Liam Smith's a good guy. Um, but he needs to demand more of his team. And as fans, we need to demand more of these promoters. You're telling me we have a weekend where we see... We see Lara Matrosian. We see Charlo Trout. We see Charlo Jackson. We see six guys at 154 that could give Liam Smith a good fight. And he goes and picks this guy. Um, you know, that, it, it tells, number one, it tells you about the pulling power of the UK. Whatever people try and tell you, no one wants to fight over here. It's not worth their while. You have to pay too much in taxes. No one trusts the judges. The fights get stopped too soon. So the Americans don't come over. That leaves Frank Warren in a really bad position because there's no one at 154, really. That's why Liam Smith has been touting potentially fighting Kel Brook, which the way both careers are going, that fight just might make sense. You might as well just do it. So, quite frankly, I don't care about him. I don't care about Tom Stalker on the undercard. I don't care about the other guys scratching a living. I just don't care about any of them because these are guys who 
you know, in any other industry, you'd have made these guys redundant and let the young guys come through. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't you? You just red pen these guys and go, they've had years to deliver, they haven't delivered. Let's put the youngsters in, see if they can do a better job. And it's so true. It's true, right. but 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 you know, there's this old guard of grey-haired people that walk around in tracksuits and like to tell you about them fighting in the sixties that go, he's a good honest pro he is. He's a good honest pro. You have your respect, mate. It takes a brave man to get in that ring, even though really it doesn't. Whatever people tell you about boxing, it's not that hard to jump in the ring once you've been hit a couple of times. It's okay. So these guys are not heroes for stepping in there. They're guys who can't do anything else in the real world, so they keep stealing a living from the sport. You know, and it stops the young kids who do have talent and hunger from coming through. Just make these guys redundant. Every couple of years, they should be a cull. The only one I'm going to chuck that line, Paul Butler, uh, you know, is his sole loss to Tete, who's a, a good fighter. Um, he, he wasn't good before he beat Butler, though, was he? Um, no, but Kovalev wasn't good before he beat Ke- Cleverly on that basis. Um, I, I what had, I'm saying is oh, sorry, I did have money on Kovalev just for the record yeah but I mean the British consciousness wasn't yeah. aware of him before he Ex- beat Butler you know. same as Kovalev wasn't you know that yeah. that one but, but I, people... I wouldn't mind giving Butler another go Tom Stalker can you know get his P45 and jog on frankly and and, and as fans we need to start doing this there should be uh, you know if I if I was ever a promoter I'd have a twice yearly cull I'd but say these guys aren't delivering then is me. this like I'm not one to defend Hearn particularly is that why Hearn is outperforming Warren is because Hearn has those at the top like if you compare like for like at the top so you've got Bellew on one week and you've got Liam Smith on the next or that's not a great example I suppose but Hearn is also investing in the lower end of it so um, the likes of Ahara Davis coming through and yes Warren's got Anthony Yarde but he doesn't get Yarde any exposure so not the same level. So one of the key things, and I, I've I've discussed this before, is if you look at how O'Hara Davis got signed, O'Hara Davis, you know, like to the to the white haired tracksuit brigade, O'Hara Davis was this guy who disrespected all the norms and conventions around boxing. Who was like, well, you know what? At the end of the fight, you should go and shake his hand. You know, it's the right thing to do. You know, me old man did it. I did it. You know what I mean? Like, boxing's boxing, mate. You're just messing around with the rules. You ain't never going to get nowhere in life. And O'Hara Davis went, there's this thing called YouTube and there's this thing called Instagram and there's this thing called Facebook. And I'm going to just share with the world my desire to be a good boxer. Gets on the radar of all the right people and gets signed. Um... You know, that's a work ethic. So Eddie Hearn buys into that. But what Eddie Hearn was smart enough to do was say, let me track my fighters on social media. So if you have a boxer, for example, and he's got 3,000 followers on Twitter, what Eddie wants to do is, of those 3,000 followers, how many engage with him? Positively or negatively, doesn't matter. You know, if you're getting 20 retweets, um, 200 likes, and then there's a chain of conversation around that, then Eddie's saying, well, you're engaged with your fans. These these are people likely to buy tickets. Good or bad, they're likely to buy tickets. And I think he's running those metrics really tight. And he's looking at those going, based on this, I'm going to put people on shows. I don't think Frank Warren is at that level of sophistication yet. I, I think um, from an outside perspective, at least, boxing is an extremely, and by comparison to other sports, uh, conservative sport. And so it doesn't take a lot for somebody to come in and look like some sort of visionary. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think definitely Hearn benefits from that in terms of the way that he's viewed. Uh, but 
but you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think that uh, boxing's gonna gonna move on into the uh, into the future somewhat because it just feel like it gets it just feel like it in many many ways it's bogged down by this by this past that just doesn't want to let go to the old way yeah, of thinking. It's these old it's these old guys. You know, the, the, these old guys that have just been around, like they haven't really trained anyone that's done anything, but they've just been around. And they always say, my old man did this and this did that. And these guys hold the sport back because they keep telling you, uh, you want to do your long runs five days a week. Don't worry about shin splints, mate. You'll be all right. You know what I mean? Don't worry about all that shin splints. Nah, nah, what? Cycling? Don't cycle, mate. You know, cycling's not the same as running. Nah, nah, you got to get on your running. You know these people who will not embrace anything that tells you that actually running is the worst thing you can do for your body. You know they don't believe that. Oh, science? What's that all about? What science experiments, mate? This gym's a laboratory, yeah. I experiment every day in here. You, I hear this bollocks all the time, and it irritates me. No, really. <laughs> the axe is well and truly ground now. I think. It is so. So. For, so my whole take on it is. We should be more progressive as a sport, but you won't get that. It and starts. It starts at the top, right? I know um, of somebody who is employed um, by the board that uh, essentially the British Boxing Board is very, very criticised heavily by people for saying it's a load of old people in suits. They're not forward thinking. Which, for the record, Robert Smith, the head of it, is actually quite a decent bloke. Like Robert Smith is um, good. There were those underneath him which um, perhaps can be criticised for being old men in suits that have got jobs for life, etc. Jobs for the boys. Um, I'm aware of a situation where somebody who's uh, been part of the board was uh, told off for advertising their, like people's shows too much on Twitter um, and the board as a whole didn't like it and um like interacting with fans on social media was basically culled and so if you're involved with the board in some way then your your allowance to use social media is pretty much like fuck all um which is tragic because i don't like them but you have the what used to be the maltese board which is now the uh eiba i think they're called aiba something like that is this the the de Carlo one yeah Gianluca de Carlo. yeah like they're for want of a better term like they're, <laughs> from the outside looking in they never look particularly great but they do interact an awful lot um with fans all over social media they they will embrace that side of it um i've had some rows with him oh mate yeah yeah like I, i've met gianluca a couple of times uh, rio he goes by as opposed to gianluca um you know i i disagree with an awful lot of what they do you know i've had rows with him and lee kelly i think it is who's somebody else who's involved there and various others within the maltese board for what they uh term like world title fights and basically my view of it being it's total bollocks uh how you can how you can advertise something as a world title because you've made up the belt and you've decided it's a world title that's honestly like me going down primark fucking sellotaping on a big silver thing on the front of a belt and then advertising me versus you next week on this <laughs> podcast for the martin boxing federation belt that's basically what they're doing did, did you hear that i've got that you've you got a title fight. i've got a title fight. yeah a title fight. yeah um so if you're gonna do that 
fine, but at least they come on and answer criticism like openly about it, which is the only plus side you can say for that. Yeah, we had a we had a full on three hour row. I I really stuck it to him. I I regret it now because he's actually you know okay guy. He's a nice guy, yeah. Rio, real nice guy. But I don't I don't agree with the idea of giving some of these these washed up husbands you know permission to box and that. I think that's the one thing I take issue with. But you no, know, it's a bit more progressive, and I guess. That's why Eddie Hearn sells the way he does because he was the first guy to go, do you know what? I'll go head-to-head with the fans where, where I feel I need to. Yep. Um, for the record, I, I actually did have to ask him to never retweet anything I say again because my phone went crazy. You know when you get the notifications <laughs> and I was like, how the hell does this guy, how does he do Twitter? Because yeah. I just had, was it, it was like 200 notifications based on a retweet and I was like, if he's retweeting you though, you're being too nice to him because he doesn't retweet anything I ever tweet. He just argues with me, which I know, no, which is fine. I like to see myself as fair as opposed to nice. When he does things right, I'll agree with him. Oh, yeah, times, yeah. There are things he doesn't do right. Uh, you know, undercards are one of them, as you all well know. But what he does right is he interacts with people, as you say. He agrees with people and he pushes back on people when he doesn't agree with yeah. them. He's very uh, honest and open about things. You know, maybe. Not always honest, I suppose, but he's honest enough that he comes on and he will answer questions directly from fans. Uh, as I suppose I'm saying, this Maltese board lot do. If the very top of the British boxing board, like if top down, the board do not allow interaction on social media and things like that's tragic. That to me is a sign of being stuck in a in a darker age than what you should be. Because they should have a social media manager like the London ABA does. Um, I think they've got Reggie Hagland and he does it. And it's good because, you know, it's the right mix. It's not too, you know, going back and forth with people. It's, it's enough information and enough exchange that you're like, okay, at least you guys are engaged. Yeah, it's a hard balancing act because, you know, you don't want to get into argument. It's not professional looking. There's nothing worse, nothing more professional looking than when you see... I said some of this board lot that have long arguments over like Facebook and Twitter with people that to me doesn't look great so you need to avoid that but on the other hand you need to engage with people and answer questions and criticism so it is a balancing act okay um sadly we come to the end of the podcast um no. and oh, we're not going to discuss the Eubank. well we're, we're, we're an hour and 10 minutes in there's still part 2 we're down their batteries Oh, we'll go part one and part two. <laughs> Sam Khan wants to know what I think. You know, right. Eddie Hearn wants to know what I think about the whole controversy. Right, okay. go on, right. Terry. Go for it. On your own, you've yeah. got a, a soapbox diatribe <laughs> okay. for the next two minutes and 30 seconds. Part three. Um, Shoot. <laughs> well, you guys are all privy to this. You've seen the, the back and forth between the Blackwells and the Eubanks. Um, I think Nick Blackwell's basically taking the goodwill that the public and particularly the boxing community had for him and basically shat on it. It's embarrassing. Um, he's been poorly advised. And I think the people who conducted the interview should have really asked him, do you really want to do this? Because what he realized very quickly is the Eubank media machine is far more powerful than he is. So essentially what you had was Nick Blackwell saying, the Eubanks having a press conference, the Eubanks discussing the safety of boxing while he was in a medically induced coma, was in bad taste, was inhuman, was disgusting. Very powerful in emotive words from someone who's probably, you know, still processing what happened and the implications for his career. But the problem he has is in the time that he was in a medically induced coma, he was essentially unaware that the public were behind the Eubanks because they could see the minute this became a brain injury, the media were going to go after the Eubanks 
and you know the story was going to be like father like son yeah i i, I must say I, I, it wasn't it i don't feel like that the eubank media machine consumed i certainly didn't sway me i don't think because i was already of the opinion that um well i suppose maybe maybe it did but what i'm trying to get at is that i, I thought it was I didn't think in any way that it was a bad thing that they came out and supported him and the way that they acted I thought was compassionate. You know, like staying silent and staying quiet could have easily been construed negatively and him coming onto more in television and saying, "Oh, we begged them to be quiet, we begged them not to say anything." But why? What you know, what he didn't reflect poorly on Nick Blackwell. He didn't reflect poorly on Nick Blackwell's family and it and all it did was just show that the that the Eubank that it looked like at the fight anyway. I mean, I was there. The fight. I watched him point to Blackwell and art gestures to the referee. Do you want me to keep going? This is you know, I'm I'm killing the guy. And after afterwards, to, to then to step up and say, you know, I'm, I'm feeling for him. We're thinking of him. I, you know, I'm sorry. And this was, you know, whatever he came across and said, I, I think that was. I it infuriates me that Blackwell then kicks up a fuss about it, almost like almost like he's looking for one last fight or trying to somehow score some brownie points I've, out of the situation. I've kind of ignored a lot of it, if I'm perfectly honest, because I don't like I don't like it. Let's <laughs> cut to the chase. But from what I understand, and you two have probably followed it more than I have, um, Blackwell's issue seems to be around where his family... Like, whilst he was in the coma, the boxing board and his family begged the Eubanks not to do the press conference, which they went ahead with anyway. Yeah, that's what he says, yeah. So, like, is this not just a man who's awoken from a coma, found out about all the pain and hardship that his family have been in whilst he's in a coma, and one of the things they specifically asked the Eubanks not to do, they went ahead and did, regardless of the advice of their family and the British board, and therefore he's probably, like taking out the frustrations of his parents vicariously through himself. Like, again, I, I haven't followed it, so I don't Terry, know. Terry, you take it. What about the Eubanks? You, yeah, you, you, ma- you imagine you're Chris Jr. Yeah. You're there going, wow, I might have just done the same thing my dad did. And, and, <laughs> exactly. and you are. You're, exactly. you're there and you're, you're in a heightened state of emotion and you're thinking to yourself, I really didn't need this so young in my career. I didn't need this. And he's there going, I hope Nick's okay. I hope Nick's okay. I didn't want to do that. And he's going through his turmoil. Chris Sr. as a father, seeing this and knowing what he's been through, is thinking, I don't need my son being thrown to the media. Whatever I need to do as a father to protect my son, I am going to do. So he did what was best for his family, the Blackwells did what was best for their family. I don't think you can be mad at that because Chris didn't say anything disrespectful about the Blackwells. I think I think no matter how you look at this, it might be an unpopular view, but there's two victims here, and there's a, a Chris Eubank in a in a in a way, a roundabout way. Yeah, all right, not a physical victim, not a victim to the point where he was in hospital. No, but if Nick Blackwell had died, the only uh, Nick Blackwell's obviously dead. Yeah, but his suffering ends. Chris Eubank then has to that oh, oh no yeah but what I'm trying to get at is that Chris Eubank has to wear that on himself for the rest of his life and to come out and to 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 be able to do anything to make him feel feel better whilst he's in that like you say heightened state of of probably panic worry distress and for them to say right be quiet whilst we get on with this I just think it's I realise there's going to be people out there that are screaming right now, thinking, oh, "How can you blame Nick Blackwell?" For, I don't, I don't blame Nick Blackwell for being upset, emotional. But I, what frustrates me is the way that he's come, 
immediately for the Eubanks and not even tried to consider it from their perspective because it's so easy for him to say that he was the bigger victim in the whole thing. I, I, I agree with every word you just said. It's it's a tragedy. You know, what happened in the rings a tragedy. I think, you know, guys like Gary Lockett got less of a rough ride than they deserved because, you know, we're talking about compassion here. I don't think there's any compassion from the corner. But Agreed. that's a discussion for another time. I, I, you know, we can rehash that. But essentially, look at how the dispute ended. It ended with Eubank Jr. saying, I'd still like to see him. We're warriors. What we went through, you know, there's a newfound respect for each other. Hopefully, I'm willing to give him my belt. Which he doesn't own. <laughs> can I just throw that in there? <laughs> well, doesn't he own a replica? Then you get replica. No, no. You've got to defend it three times or, or is that something else? You defend the belt three times, you get given the belt. Who's going to take that belt off Nick Blackwell if Eubank gives it to him? I'd love to see the guy that does that. <laughs> Some yeah. proper dickhead. Uh, that doesn't belong to you, mate. What? Whilst the cameras are flashing as he's handing it over. Just conscious of time. Mr. Blackwell. <laughs> You've got something that belongs to me, mate. Just conscious of time and, you know, making sure that we have balance here. So, number one, unlucky to Katie Taylor, who got a bronze in the World Championships. Congratulations to Kelly Harrington. Congratulations to Nicola Adams with the gold. Kelly Silver, really impressive performance. I had to stop a meeting at work so I could watch the fight. Um, you know, as you've heard me say it before, fantastically skilled, lovely. I think a big fight in Ireland in the amateur scene would be Kelly Harrington versus Katie Taylor at 62. I'd be, I'd fly out for that fight. Um... It's a shame there's no 62, oh, sorry, no 64 category at the Olympics because I think Kelly Harrington is an international standard fighter. I was super impressed with that. But also, just, just on a wider note, if Katie Taylor, who was so dominant for five years at the world level, is getting beaten in the semis, that tells you how much the standard of women's boxing has improved. Or drugs. <laughs> Chuck Yana. <laughs> No noticeable traces, but I think one of the things I will mention about women's boxing is you can see the difference testosterone makes in female <laughs> boxing. I, I, no, no, well, I, I know everyone's going to laugh, but you can see where women have naturally higher testosterone levels, and it doesn't have to be that big a difference. But you, you know, you're seeing women, you know, who physically look so much more dense than their opponents, and you're thinking to yourself you wouldn't get this in men's boxing because not statistically testosterone levels are more or less similar. It's, as the, ones, as we just discussed it's the ones that have to shave at the end of a round. That's when... Uh... <laughs> no, I'm going to stand up for women's boxing here. I, 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 you know, I, I have you be allowed to shave? Or... Um, <laughs> but no, it's... I, I, I say to people, watch it in real. I know you only get three weight classes, but if you really want to see a good skill level, you know, you're not going to see the knockouts and the stoppages, but you're definitely going to see a good skill level. Women's boxing at the Olympics will be good. Um, I think that's my good deed for the week done. <laughs> not to be too patronising. Um, okay, right. That's where we, unless you I mean you want to talk about, you're going to spring something else on me. Are we finished? It's probably what I'm going to ask first. Before I... yeah. yeah, okay, right. Magic. Um, that's Terry's weekly therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's, he's spent. Great hair in the tracksuits. <laughs> right, like the Facebook page, uh, New Age Boxing. Um, I want you to get in touch with us, New Age Boxing UK, on Twitter. I want you to ask questions. That's your homework for this week, listeners, dear listeners. 
We need more questions so that we can uh, add them to our arsenal of, uh, I don't know, points to make on the podcast. I mean, we've done pretty well this week. We had one question, uh, we had two fights, and we've managed to bang on for an hour and 20 minutes, so... That's good going, but listen, there's more questions, because people are coming up to me, and they're asking me to comment on things. So, you know, people are pulling me up about stuff I said about Nick Blackwell last week, uh, Nick Webb last week, sorry. Um, Look, everyone get involved, abuse me, ask me tough questions, (laughs) tell me I talk out my backside. Yeah, just give me a reason to bite back, man, let's have some fun, you know, we all do this sport because we enjoy it. So let's just enjoy ourselves. Yeah, it's important to, like, I remember, I've listened to podcasts, um, I, I frequently do, and you hear, um, I'm asking for questions, and sometimes I think, I think, oh, they're not going to want to answer that question, or maybe it feels like it's an, a novice question. And when you've got two oracles, like I'm sitting between right now, sometimes it, uh, all across the podcast, you might think that it's a silly question. Well, just ask a question. If you, if you think, at the very least... Fucking hell, this has gone comic relief. We'll like, be... <laughs> levels of ITV telethon. <laughs> Lenny well, Henry's going to pop up in a Do minute. it any time. Ring the number. No, it's... Well, I'm just trying to give people, uh, like, the confidence. If you ask a question and it's naff, we'll make it a while. We'll find a way to ask a question out of it. So, yeah, get involved. That's what I'm saying. Well, so, Lenny Henry will be on next week and no one wants that. Well, look, more importantly, man, it's going to be David Hay versus Shannon Briggs in September. You know, we want to get all the new age guys together. If it's at the O2, we'll all sit by that all bar one. We'll take it over. And, you know, we'll just, we will just talk boxing, have a good time. Listen, everyone's invited. You all know what I look like. Even if you don't, you do. <laughs> okay. Enough said, I think. Uh, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. Have a good week, everyone. See you later. Beat it up, 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 beat it up